Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Times Over the Moon about today's guest. This is going to be a good one. So today's guest started off playing at the University of Saskatchewan. They went to Red Deer College where they won a national champion, uh, excuse me, a national championship. And then here we go. Three-time champion in the Korean League. He's a Turkish champ. He's won the Greek Cup and a Greek championship. He's been a part of our national team since 2007 and was a big, big part of us getting to the Olympics. Please welcome to the show, Gavin Schmidt. Gavin, thanks for doing this. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, I'm a fan of your uh, of your podcast. I've listened to a few when I was on the road in Korea, and I like what you do, and you're, you're doing a great thing here. Awesome. Yeah, I'm glad we could get you. And obviously, with somebody in your level in the volleyball community, uh, I got to start with one story. Can you confirm this? Were you discovered at a Fuddruckers? Is that true? Like, is that urban myth in the volleyball community, or is that how you got into our sport? Yeah, there's like, you know, with every story, there's a grain of truth to it. And I think that story has been like, it's been around for a long time and it is more or less true in a way. Like people have like kind of fudged it to a point where they're like, yeah, he left the restaurant and just basically started playing. Um, <laughs> but, but the truth of it is I was in grade 11, I grew seven inches. And so I didn't play sports and I was predominantly a basketball player to that point. Uh, so when I was in grade 11, I just got a job and I was working busing tables at Fuddruckers and doing some food prep and doing various things. And in walked the provincial team. I guess they had training camp in in the city here or or nearby. So they went for team dinner at Fuddruckers and the coach at the time, Adam Ewart, uh, he approached me and he was just like, hey, you're tall. It's like, yeah, I am. <laughs> it's like, super awkward conversation. He's like, do you play volleyball? I'm like, nope. He's like, do you want to play volleyball? I'm like, Nope, I have no interest in that. I play basketball because at that point I was so gung ho. Just yeah, I'm going to work for a year and then go back to playing basketball because that's what I knew. And so that was the end of the end of it all. Um, I ended up telling my mother the story, and then in grade 12 she kind of pushed me as short of players. Uh, so I, I went, I did that, and lo and behold, at one of the high school tournaments, that coach came back and reapproached me, and he's like, "Hey, do you remember me?" I was like. Yeah, I do. You're that guy from, from Fuddruckers when I was working. He's like, yeah, so I see you're playing volleyball. which <laughs> Clearly, you have some interest in it now. So I said, yeah, I do. And then he invited me out to his club. And, and then that kind of snowballed into the provincial team. So like I said, I didn't act like, you know, it kind of it is true, but not maybe not to the extent that some people think it is. Nice. And then what was the next step in your journey? Because obviously you're identified as a physical athlete who can be a big part in our sport. So when you get to club, like what were your first impressions of volleyball at a little bit higher level? Or was your high school league pretty good? And that got you hooked on how competitive and fun our sport can be. Honestly, this is a story that probably hasn't been told a lot throughout the volleyball community because not many people know it. I so like I played high school we had just kind of a teacher teaching it. Like he, he was not a volleyball coach. He was not really much of an ex player. It was just whoever we could get to cover it. Cause I went to a big um, football basketball school. Those were the two, the two big sports. So when Adam recruited me and I went out to my first club practice, he actually ran a small club outside of the city in a town called Asquith. It's like 30 minutes um, West of the city. He, that, that club, it had basically housed a lot of the best players in the city and in the surrounding towns. So in Saskatchewan, you get a lot of small town players who are really quite good because they play multiple sports. They're good athletes. And I was late getting out to practice because I didn't know where the gym was or where Asquith was. And I drove myself out 
And I walked into the gym and they were already in hitting warm up. And I like took a quick look at around and I was like, holy crap, there's a lot of good players here. And I just like turned around and beelined it and left. Wow. <laughs> just, I just like walked out. I'm like, I am not good enough to be here. These guys are much above my level. And so I just pieced out. The coach ended up like calling my home and talked to my mom and was like, hey, get him back out. Like I, and he was, he was late as well. So like I didn't even get the chance to be like, hey, you're the one who brought me here. It was just some other guy. And I was like, I'm, I'm not good enough. So he kind of called and convinced me to come back out. And at that point, I was, I was a pretty decent athlete, but it was just like doing laps around the gym of footwork, um, trying to get the bare basics of volleyball down. So because you were part of such a competitive club team, is that what made post-secondary going to be an option for you? Or what was your recruiting process or, or following up on like how you reached the next level of volleyball? Like what was the next step for you after playing a year of club? So I was not really recruited at all at the start. So yeah, club was good. I, I, because I was playing with people who were a lot better than me, I was able to bridge that gap in, in skill. Like I wasn't above them, but I was able to kind of fast track my development. You know, when you surround yourself with good players, you're forcing yourself to try to get to their level. So, so that went quite well. And then it was late summer once I was on the provincial team and I don't remember exactly when it was, but it was after a, a tournament in the summer. I can't remember if it was after nationals like NTCCs here in, in Saskatoon that we, we actually won that summer. We won nationals. But it was really late in the summer that uh, Brian Gavlis at U of S kind of approached me. And then shortly after, um, the coach at U of R at the time approached me. But I really had no options. Um, it was like, go to U of S or don't play volleyball. Like, I was not heavily recruited. And so I took that opportunity. I was just like, you know what? I have a chance to play university sport. I like, I'm really enjoying this. Uh, as with any new sport, when you're kind of learning something new, it's really exciting because you can see the big, big chunks of improvement. And so I, I took the opportunity and I went and that's kind of the next step. I had to play catch up with all the guys in the university as well. This is so awesome hearing your side of it because I think it's revisionist history at this point that people think you were discovered at this burger shop and then three years later you're playing on the national team, but you were actually enjoying the learning process and having to grind a little bit, right? Like just hearing that you weren't a top tier recruit and had to really focus on learning is definitely an interesting part that I, I don't think it's talked about a lot with your journey. Yeah, I was awful. <laughs> if I'm to be honest, like I was, I was not good. And a lot of people just assume I was like, some sort of athletic freak coming out of like the womb. There's like, he must've just been crazy, like crazy athlete from the start. Being said, I was, I was a pretty good athlete at most things I did. Um, and that's why I was able to transition fairly fast into volleyball and pick it up pretty good. But I was, I was not good. Like I, I, it was like, there was a lot of struggles. I got my ass beat a lot just over and over again, trying to learn basic skills, like how to pass a free ball or how, how to set. And I just had to work really hard to try to play catch up. And did that, did that catch up appear at every level you were playing? Like uh, you mentioned going to U of S were practices more intense there. And that really helped push the, lear the learning curve. Cause you felt like you were catching up to a peer group. Cause that might've been one of your first opportunities to play against older athletes, right? Yeah, that's definitely what it was. So we had a, a pretty mature group coming through a lot of like third, fourth and like fifth year guys who were, who had been around the sport a lot. And we were a pretty good team uh, at that time. 
So trying to play catch up and trying to just compete and practice and trying to earn a spot, I got fairly fortunate to not redshirt my first year. Like I actually made the traveling roster and, uh, and worked my way in. And by the end of the season, I was probably pretty close. Like people have since told me, they didn't tell me then, but they're like, you should have been starting on that team. Like you really kind of picked it up fast enough that based on, on who else was on that team, like we probably should have been using you as a starter, but I was also so green and so nervous and so scared of everything that they probably <laughs> shouldn't have been using me just cause I didn't, I didn't have any sort of confidence in what I was doing. Like I was still trying to learn the, the basics, but always having kind of better guys around me was just forcing me to like try to try to catch them, which is the key to any like young athletes development, I think. And then to follow your journey, how did the opportunity with Red Deer come about? Like, did Keith Hansen approach you? Was he speaking to your coach at U of S? Or did you just hear the the Irvin, Irvin Levigen that was being Gavin and in your development in our sport? Like, how did you land there and compete with a, a team that's going to play for a national championship, it feels like, every year? Yeah, so so that's funny. And one thing I should note that I, I guess I didn't is up until this point when I went to Red Deer, I was a middle blocker. So I've been playing... Provincial team, club, U of S, all as a middle blocker. I think I took a couple reps on the right side as like a blocking sub every so often, but um, predominantly I was a middle. So after U of S, uh, I did super awesome academically and became ineligible because I basically attended one course all all year, which was gymnastics because it was super fun. (laughs) But... uh, (laughs) But like my, my thing was just to be a volleyball player. Like I just, I went to, I wasn't planning on going to school before I got recruited. I was going to take a year off. So basically I took that year off academically, but, but played volleyball. So I took a year off after that and just worked a normal job detailing cars. I played a little bit of ball. I did like some senior men's volleyball and, uh, that was it. So after a year of cleaning cars, I was just kind of like, this sucks. Like I'd like to go back to school. And I actually looked at different schools and looked at different programs and kind of planned what I might want to take. So I looked at two two schools because Mark Dodds had, had done a similar path. He mentioned, you know, maybe you should look at going to college because you'll be eligible for the full season there, which you wouldn't be at U of S until you pass uh, your, your proper amount of credits. So I looked at Mount Royal College and Red Deer because Mark had gone to Red Deer and he had kind of recommended it. And I knew a friend who was playing at Mount Royal. So I went for a recruitment tour out there and spent a couple days to see the school and, and see what was going on out there. And, and I liked it. They were going to use me predominantly as a middle. I don't know how Keith got notified that I was looking to go to college, but he did. So he reached out and he said, Hey, I remember seeing you with the junior Huskies and you were playing middle, but when you would rotate into the back, we would do a, a little rotation thing where I would be able to hit C balls or D balls, whichever you call it from the back row. So I was always attacking and he's like, I really liked what I saw there. You should come play right side for us. And I was, te- I was like, oh, yeah, that sounds way better than, than playing middle. Like this is a whole new challenge for me, which is something I, I kind of thrive in, like, I like taking on new challenges and, and stuff. So, uh, inevitably we kind of spoke and, and, and crossed paths a little bit. 
And I said, yeah, sure, let's do Red Deer. Mark had spoken so highly about them. I knew that they were they were like a national championship team every year. Everybody spoke so well of, of Keith. So it just seemed like a, a good fit also because it was kind of a small school. So it helped me get my academic bearings under me a little bit more. So I just kind of kind of went for it. And I'm like, I guess I'm going to be a right side now. Awesome. And what, what can you tell us about Keith Hansen and what he's got going on there with Red Deer? Like, why are they so competitive every year, it feels like? Um, for me, it really boils back to kind of the culture that he built around that team. So a lot of people might claim, you know, he was just a really good, not, they would never say he's just, but they would say he's a really good recruiter and was able to bring in good, good athletes because he had a, a feeder system to U of A, which was also a top school. But for me, it was the culture. Uh, he was able to get everybody to buy into what, what we needed to do. And he, he would treat everybody like adults, you know, at the beginning of the season, he'd be like, you guys can drink, you guys can party, you can do what you want to do. But if you're not, it's really what it boiled down to. So you could get kind of a sense of where you needed to be. And then because of the past history, there was always expectations on every new year. So when you have those expectations to live up to, you deal with a certain amount of pressure, but you deal with a certain amount of self-motivation of not wanting to live up to those expectations and be the team who, who breaks the streak or lets, lets people down. And so that all gets encompassed into like one big kind of culture that, that breeds success, not to mention Keith's technical ability to coach his knowledge on the sport. Like he's a very high level coach who, who knows it well. He's coached pro in Germany. Um, he knows it well. So he's able to pass that on within that culture of sport that just kind of becomes a hotbed for, for development and, and success. So again, just looking at your pathway of going like club provincial team and now post-secondary with Red Deer, are you speaking to Dodds about playing pro or the national team or do those conversations come up with coach Keith? Like at what point, like obviously you're, you're pursuing academics because you want to play volleyball at a high level. At what point did the next level of volleyball really get your attention and become one of your goals? So it was, um, it got brought to my attention when I was actually at U of S. So as a middle, I got, um, pre, I got invited to a, to a camp. I think it was for the B team. I can't remember exactly, but I got an email from Chris Green, who was with the team. And he's like, hey, we want to bring you out. And I think it was more of a identification thing than anything. But um, that kind of got brought to my attention. That's when uh, Stelio was the coach. So I was committed to Canada Games. I'd committed to my provincial team at that time. And I, I messaged my coach, Adam Ewart, the provincial team coach. And I said, hey, I have this opportunity to go. If I go... I'll miss Canada games, which I already like told you I'll do. That's, that's another thing that that's noted. It's like, if I tell someone I'm, I'm going to do it for them, I will. Like I promised him I would play. So I told him I'd play. So I emailed the national team back just saying like, Hey, I just need to clear it with my provincial team coach. Cause I already promised him I'd play. Um, he of course said yes. And then I never really heard back from them. I found out years later that, that they kind of took my hesitancy as, like I was not interested, which wow. is not the case. It was just like a, I mean, I was 19. Communication is not necessarily your strong point when you're at, at that age. So then as I switched to right side, I, I had a really good year in Red Deer. I uh, figured out the position and and developed really quite quickly to a point where we won, we won the national championship and I was playing at a pretty decent level. 
Um, I, I know a lot of this because of what I was told after the fact, but uh, nobody had really noticed me or scouted me because the national team at that time didn't do a ton of scouting at colleges. Usually it was predominantly from, from universities, although there was a guy from Red Deer who, who kind of got picked up the year before. I guess Keith kind of reached out and he had told me, he's like, I never do this, but I was blown away at like how fast you kind of developed. He's like, I've never seen someone kind of pick up the, a position and, and do it that fast. So he had reached out to them and said, you might want to take a look at this guy, which kind of brought the national team back into, into my reality, as well as like kind of all new opportunities. Because unlike out of high school, I was actually being recruited by multiple other schools uh, where options kind of opened up. And then, uh, and the national team, of course, for me being a guy who was not so focused on academics, uh, that was the the most interesting one to me. And do you remember how your either self-talk or personal identity was changing through this process? Because it, it sounds really interesting to hear you say that you were bad and, and you had to learn a lot. And now it sounds like these coaches have identified you and they're telling you how good you could be. Like, did your identity match like the potential they saw in you or how were you growing? Like, did that national championship and the way you played in the final really confirm that you could be like a next tier player? Yeah, it's tough to say. Um, I had built enough confidence to be successful in college, but I've always, I mean, I didn't know what a next level player really was, to be honest. I guess I knew university from college to university, but I had no idea about the national team, about the quality of guys there. Um, so I had built enough, enough confidence to be comfortable competing at college. But I remember when I got the invite to try out for the national team, like I was 99% sure that I was not good enough to do that. When you look at the list of guys who were kind of coming in, so kind of going into each phase, I always felt like I was stepping outside of my, I guess you could say comfort zone, but my, my vision of my potential at the time. So I was like, Oh, I should, like, I'm not good enough to be with the national team yet. And so I never really, I mean, most of my coaches weren't like saying to my face, like, Hey, you're so great. You could be so good. Um, which is great because I don't really listen to that. Like I don't take compliments super well in the first place. So I just be like, Hey, you guys are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was always kind of, I always felt like I was stepping outside of my level all the way, all the way up and to, like even on the national team, trying to go from just college to being on the national team. Uh, from from the B team to the A team or the Fishu team to the B, moving outside of my my personal thought was like outside of my personal potential. But I guess other people saw something in me that I I didn't necessarily see or fully believe in myself. <laughs> nice, nice, and it's interesting to hear the way Stelio and the staff kind of took like your hesitation as disinterest. So when you started being a part of the national team program, just help me with the timeline. When did Glenn get involved? Like, cause one thing that's famous about Glenn is when you are on the B team or the FISU team, like it's still under his umbrella and there's like a system in place. So when you were part of the, the early years of the national team, was that still under Stelio's guidance? No, that was under Glenn. So my, my first year was Glenn's second year. Um, so the miscommunication would have happened with, uh, Stelio's era. Um, and I think it was, but it was with, uh, with Chris Green. Cause he was the one who inevitably kind of told me, he's like, yeah, I thought you weren't interested. 
but then when I have initially like finally came and, and, and came as a right side, which thank God, I mean, I probably would have went there as a middle and maybe like floated around for a year or two and not really found my group. So it's, it's much better that I ended up there later. <laughs> um, it was with Glenn. So I did the tryout with Glenn and had my meeting to, to join the, the Fichu team and, and stuff with Glenn. And he was the one who I kind of spoke with about doing full-time center over going back to school and, and going that route. Nice, nice. And as you're progressing, like obviously, I think to sports fans, like speed of the game is definitely one thing that goes up every level and physicality. But what was standing out in your mind as you continue to climb this ladder? Because you mentioned you did get comfortable with the college level, but when you either went to FISU or maybe you're around some A-team guys when you're at FTC, was there anything that kind of blew your mind about like what the next level really was about? Honestly, it was a, it was a shock each level, uh, trying to get up to, up to speed, even just going to the, to the tryout in, in 2007. Um, I couldn't hit line. Uh, and I, I'm a fairly good line hitter now, <laughs> but because the, the speed of the set was so much faster than I was accustomed to, the momentum of the ball would carry it wide. And I must've hit like 40 balls out by like, half a foot because I couldn't, I couldn't adjust to the speed. So it was always a speed shock. Uh, I remember going to Fichu games and being a bench player and, and just getting beat up on by the other guys and trying to always trying to play catch up to, to them playing. And I was, uh, put in the game a lot at, at our Fichu games. Uh, I was like kind of the first guy off the bench usually, and George Laplante like yelling at me like, Gavin, what are you doing? <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> George would yell at me and then Marsden, who was like this soft spoken guy, like, it's okay, you're doing good. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> it was it was wild. And and then from Fishu, because I stayed full time center, that was a year where they kept guys back to prepare for Olympic qualifier. It was January in Puerto Rico, I believe. And so, um, Glenn led guys who already had pre-existing contracts go. So Paul Durden and Fred Winters were actually overseas because they had kind of signed their contracts before this plan went into place. So he's like, I'm not going to make you guys like break your contracts or anything. So I had to, I basically was training with the A team that was gearing up for the Olympics, um, and filling in the spot of Paul. So Dallas was at the time he was kind of playing the starting position and I was, you know, this young kid in here on the B team trying to not ruin practice. (laughs) (laughs) Don't make practice suck so bad that these guys can't, you know, get, get their time in. So it's always just kind of trying to play catch up. And then that's like, I mean, you're hitting against Murray Grappentine, Steve Brinkman. Um, I could name, name so many guys, but these are good middles. Like, I don't think I scored for like the first three weeks of practice. (laughs) Now, did any of the vets go out of their way to help you or were they so competitive that like when you're in a drill with Brinkman, he's not going to he's not going to help you out if you're on the other side of the net? Like what were some of the vets doing to help you maybe get up to speed, but also, like you said, kicking your butt when the drill's on? Yeah, I mean, none of them, none of the guys that I've ever played with have been so competitive that they're not willing to help you develop. Most of them that I've that I've gone through the program with want the best for the program and want the best for the team. That's usually the thing with national team. You either have to buy in to want the best for the team and the program, or you're probably not going to be a good fit. So guys like Murray and Steve, um, they, 
they were really good to me. Uh, Dallas was really good. I actually lived with him. So we had a good relationship and everybody was just trying to help me with like skills, how to read the game, how to understand the game, how to get your like your volleyball IQ up to speed. And then obviously like technical work, like what I'm, how, how I'm blocking incorrect or like moving my hands or not holding straight or um, everybody's always been really good at like trying to, to help bridge that gap and get everybody up to the best level that they can be. It's good to hear that you had a good relationship with Dallas. I'm wondering, did things ever get heated? Because as an outsider, two young studs fighting for the same position for so many years and obviously the the experiment to maybe move him to left for a little bit, but I don't think they tried that with you. So with you guys going head to head for the, the one position so long, did it ever get heated? Or like you said, you guys were always on good terms and it was always for the program. Um, I know there was always like a bit of like, and I'm sure with Dallas as well, like competitive fire and, and you want to be the one playing like nobody, nobody enjoys being on the bench if they don't have to be. And if, if you're good enough to play and like me and Dallas, we played against each other in Korea as well. So there's always like a bit of a, a competitive rivalry, but I can't actually remember any point specific point in time where there was like major tension. Um, obviously like things can get intense in drills where you're like really competing against each other, but you're competing against the other side as well, not directly each other. But we've, we've always had like a good standing relationship, like nothing that would ever carry like outside the court where we're like pissed at each other besides any sort of little, like something that might've happened like that day, you know, like someone gets mad at the, like the team or the other guys. Um, I mean, I can't remember all the practices and all the times, but I can't think of like anything specific where it would, it would carry out and we, we hated each other or disliked each other. I think it was very, very healthy and very good because it was always one trying to like better the other and which can, I mean, if you can get into that kind of healthy competitive rivalry, it's just going to fast track your development that much more because you're always trying to be better than someone who's so close to you. And so you might seesaw back and forth. Um, and that's that's just good for for improvement. And how would you describe just the mood around the national team? Because I believe not qualifying for those games is that when there was a little bit of a, a cycle change where some young guys started to move in, and maybe like Murray and Steve and the Koski Durden era, like those guys started to to move away from the national team, right? Yeah. So that was uh, I wasn't there for that qualifier because Paul came back and Paul and Dallas kind of took the reins which is completely understandable because I was not good enough to be at that qualifier. <laughs> um, and then after, after they didn't qualify, I think that was a, it, I wasn't around when they got back, but I know it was, it was pretty tough for a lot of guys because for a lot of them, they knew that was their, their last chance. Like I'm, I'm pretty sure Paul knew that he wasn't going to do another run for another four years or, or maybe he didn't, but I knew like, you know, Murray, there was a quite a few guys who and accepting that, like, you know, I'm never going to get to get to go because I'm going to retire after this is it's a tough pill to swallow because that's what everybody everybody wants to do. I know I know Paul has, has said before that that was always kind of a an outlier in his career that he wish wish he could change. So for sure, it was it was a somber mood. But I think that's when Glenn saw like, OK, because Glenn's a big picture guy, right? He He makes big, long plans and and has, has a broad vision. I think that's when he identified it and said, okay, we need to rebuild this, this team. And so he kept a, a certain amount of, of older guys around, 
to, to help guide people through who, who could fill spots. But that's when he started to bring in a lot of young guys, really, really develop, get young guys some more playing experience. Cause he knew it was going to take a while till we were up to, up to the speed that we needed to be in order to actually qualify. And just help us out with, with, what Glenn is really strong at. You mentioned like the long-term planning, but he's also credited with just being a great systems coach. So I'm wondering when the new cycle started to hit, like were you still hitting like this lightning quick set that could be really hard for a right-handed right side to have vision with, or did it start to get tailored more to what your needs were as you were kind of, you and Dallas were going to be labeled as kind of like the next gen guys for the next cycle. Like how is Glenn so good at systems, but also adjusting and making sure that guys skills are being showcased for like the tools that he has. Yeah, so so as as you mentioned, he's great at systems. He's great at um, identifying. He's really great at identifying athletes and picking out their strengths, weaknesses, what they can do, what they might struggle with, how to try to fix that or adjust that. Within the first few years of the team, um, we were still trying to play really quick because he knew we needed to speed up our game. We were just playing uh, a little slower than everybody else. And this was a time where Brazil was having a, a lot of success, just like really speeding up the ball, playing lightning quick everywhere. So that was kind of our, our goal was to create these systems and play fast and catch up to them. So Glenn's really good at, at creating systems, creating ways to, to build success at what you need, creating drills, creating systems, creating rules and structure that will get you to the point that is the goal. So if it was playing fast, that was the system that he created and it forced us to try to get to that point. And so he's really good at, at identifying that. He he's also has a really large technical skill database in his head that he can pull out and, and help you develop like, and, and he's good at explaining it. So that was kind of the thing. And then as we getting fast, we need to do this, we need to do that. Once we got that down at a base and got our, our skill level up and our systems in place, like our blocking, defense, all, all the various systems, that's when he started to give a little bit more free range and we started to tailor the speed of the play to the to the player because we needed a baseline that we could play at. And then it's like, okay, Gavin, we're not going to play quite as fast. We're going to slow it down just a little bit and get it a little bit higher so that we can utilize his physicality or, you know, like, you know, Nick likes a fast, so it's like we're going to play extra, like still fast to Nick, or you know. And then once we had that baseline, we were able to to tailor it a little more individually. Nice and and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe along this timeline is when you started playing professionally, right? And I think guys in the the current era are, are lucky for the foundation that you and, and the national team kind of laid that it's a little bit easier, I think, to get a contract. So with you coming off a college national championship and a year of FTC. What were some of the conversations with your agent and what were some of the offers you were considering or when you went overseas for the first time? So my first stint overseas was actually to Korea where I ended up playing a few years later. And um, it was a team who hadn't signed a foreign player at the start of the season. They were going to try to make a run with an all Korean team. And uh, I had signed, uh, I'd signed the agents that I was working with at the time. And they contacted me and they're like, Hey, you have a tryout in Korea tomorrow. And I was like, okay, like that's like, this is all pretty new to me, but I'm like, this is how this works. I guess you just get called <laughs> tryout tomorrow. And he's like, he's like, this is a big opportunity for you. You can go to Korea. They pay really well. 
um, talk to Glenn because I was training for the Olympic qualifier with the guys at the time. So I went to him. I said, Hey, like, you know, they, they messaged me. They said they want me to fly out tomorrow. Uh, I think it was like tomorrow or, or the next day to, to try out for this team out there. And he was pretty good about it. He's like, yeah, go like, I think cause he wasn't planning on taking me to the Olympic qualifier anyways. Um, so I went out there and I did the tryout the night before I went, my agent was actually like, Oh yeah, you're trying out as a left side, not a right side. Like, what? Like, I'm not even good enough to be a right side right now. Like, they want me to pass. Like, I'm not a passer. And he's like, just go do it. Like, honestly, he's like, worst worst case scenario, they say, no, you got a free flight out to Korea. You hang out for a week and then you come home. I actually ended up going out, doing pretty well. um, And they kept me for like a month. They were just like, yeah, we, I went over Christmas. So I would have went at the start of December. They're like, we really like you. The coach loved me. He also saw like a bunch of potential. He's like, I can teach this guy to pass. He's like, he's, he learns well. Like I can, I can teach him to pass. He can play receiver here until then we can use you as a right side and kind of do both. And he just couldn't quite sell the club on it. So they sent me home and he, as I left, he's like, Hey, if you want to come back and just be a training player, um, you can do that. I'll pay you like a small salary on the side and I'm just going to work with you so that I can like have you in the system and try to try to keep you for next year. But they went a different direction and I ended up coming home and getting an offer to go to Greece because, yeah, it was like it was the last place team. They fired all their foreigners. Um, they're just like, we're bringing, bringing in three new guys. And they brought in actually three Canadians, myself, Tone Ben Langfelt and Chris Wolfenden. And so we all went over and tried to, like, save this team from relegation. And that was kind of the, the progression for people who don't have a big name like Canada there was some, some players from there, but there wasn't this huge pool of players that was going over every year. So you just had to kind of take your opportunities where they were at, especially for a guy like me, who's really like, I was unknown in the world of volleyball. And did, having two other Canadians on the squad, did that really help the transition? Cause I think outside of volleyball, there's a lot of stuff to get used to, whether it's the language, the living situation, all the free time that you have to fill, like finding times to like work out and still stay game fit. Like, was Wolfenden and Toon able to kind of show you what being a professional was, or did you kind of navigate that on your own? Um, no, they they kind of helped. Like, Chris helped because Chris had experience with it. So that was Tone's first contract as well. Um, so we were both kind of young and, and raw and coming in. And Chris had, had an, more experience with that. So just having people to hang out with because being in a new country, new everything was, was – a an adjustment in the first place, but having actually having a friend base there that you can kind of rely on was really, really nice. And and Chris could kind of be like, you know, this is what you, you need to do. He wasn't super like, Hey, do this, do this, do this. But he he just kind of led by example and and you were able to follow and it kind of helped ease the transition a little bit. Now, just to focus on your pro career, instead of jumping back and forth with the national team, I was wondering if you could settle the rumor. Cause again, a lot of volleyball outsiders watching your career, is Korea's training and volume just so intense? Like looking at some score sheets, I believe like you scored 58 points in a match once. Like, are you just being used as the big foreigner there expected to be the point scorer? Like was your volume that gnarly and what were they doing in practice to like either were you getting beat down in practice or were they just trying to keep you healthy for games? Um, so yeah, at that time, uh, very true. The volume was insane. Like, uh, yeah, I think I had 58 in one game. And I remember seeing a list somewhere, someone sent it to me and it was like top scores in, in whatever, like however many matches. And like, 
my specifically that team, I should say, and kind of why. Uh, but I, I like, I don't know. I was on the top like ten times. It wasn't like one outlier match where you had fifty-eight. It was like I had like fifty-eight, fifty-seven, fifty-two, fifty-two, forty-five, forty-eight, forty-eight. Like they used me uh, a ton, and that was that was normal for Korea. So the foreign player takes a big load. Like when you when you see like big scoring matches, a lot of them are in Korea. And that has kind of changed to, to now because um, I was there this past year and, and they don't do it as much. They've, they're becoming more more spread, but it is still very foreigner reliant because they're only allowed one. But my team had, um, it was just kind of the way they were built. They We had some old receivers who could receive really well, uh, a wicked libero, and we didn't have much for another left side attacker. So we always tried to keep two really good receivers and, and kind of clever guys. And that was just kind of their game plan. They're like, we're going to take care of like defense, reception, everything. And we're just going to set our, we're going to find a guy who can be a workhorse and we're going to set him a lot and just find a way to be successful like that. And that's kind of what they had done in the past and what they did with me as well. And so games was always a, a ton of volume, uh, hit a lot of balls. And then practice was also hard, but I learned to navigate it a little bit better as my progressive years went. But I remember being there my first year and like, it wasn't any like four, five or six hour practices like people sometimes say, but they work hard. Like we did a lot of defense, a lot of passing, a lot of like conditioning work, even within the practice and a lot of like hitting and serving for me, especially it was good. I was so young at the time because I was able to kind of endure it. But they, they just, they worked me the way I had to be and in order to do it in a game because you need to be at a certain level of conditioning in order to be able to do that in a match and not be completely gassed out and to do it more than once in, in a week or, or in, a, in like two weeks for that matter. So we did a, a lot of on-court training. And one thing that I don't know if people know is that we did like a ton of weight training. Like I've never done as much weight training as I did with that team. And it was just to try to build durability and it, it worked really well. And, and actually like I went in quite skinny, I think I put on almost like 10 to 12 pounds of muscle over my years playing there. Like just cause they, they knew like the coach was like, you're too skinny, go to the weight room. Like you just need to build, build muscle and be strong and be able to handle what we're going to put you through. Did playing in the, in the Korean league really help build your confidence? Like I imagine it's gotta be a great feeling getting over 50 kills a match, but also playing for a championship as often as you did. Like, did that really build your confidence the, to let you know that you could get it done on the international stage? Yeah. So, um, I used to hear a lot of buzz like, Oh, he's, he's playing in Korea. Korea is easy. He doesn't have to hit against big blockers and, and whatever. And, and honestly, that's true. Had I been in a different country in Italy, or Russia earlier, probably my develop would have been different. And, and I, you know, I might've ended up as a different style player, a different kind of player who's to say what would have been better or worse. I don't know. But one thing I can say is that it, it was great for my development because taking the volume I did fast tracked me. I mean, in the world of professional sports, I was behind on reps on everybody and I just needed to, to do it and, uh, and catch up. It was also really good for me at learning how to deal with pressure and kind of be relied on when, when I needed to be, because I remember a game 
I came out, I think I had like 45 points and we lost. And the coach sat down in the room and he looked at his stat sheets and he, and like the percentages. He's like, kind of talked to the other guys in Korean and turned to me and he's like, you, you need to be, I forget what my efficiency was. I think it was like 52 or something or low or 49. He's like, you need to be above like 55% and score more. We're going to lose every game. It's up to wow. you. And just like left. I was like, Oh, <laughs> that's, that's something. So it, it forced me to, to learn how to be kind of take that, take a role within the team and like, okay, if they, if they need you, you need to be able to handle the pressure of being needed and to do it. So it, it was skill development through repetition, but also just kind of character development as far as being like trying to build, being a trustworthy play, the player or someone who can rise to an occasion and, and build that confidence that I didn't have, um, in becoming, you know, winning some championships and learning how to win and how to deal with the pressures of winning. Um, so it, it really helped me with a lot of, a lot of that. Whereas maybe some of the skill development might've been better somewhere else. It, it built a lot of intangibles in me, which, which I kind of fell back to and, and was happy to have later on. Again, just looking at maybe the pessimist side of, of some fans in our sport, do you think that it's great to hear you list all the benefits of playing in the Korean League, but at any moment, did you start to think that maybe this volume was going to start to cause some injuries or where where did some of the injuries start to affect you during your career? Yeah, I mean, some of, so I would attribute maybe some of my left shin to there, but, and some, and some people have said that, like, oh, that's probably why he got injured. And I shouldn't say I will I suppose I, I can say you could, but honestly, like the most, the most problem I had there was just managing my shoulder. Uh, and it was never anything major. It was just like overused, trying to keep it calm down. It was always kind of just like tight and sore from, from swinging so much, but I had no problems with my knees. I had no problems with my shins, um, when I was there. So it's tough to say that Korea caused it when I left there pretty healthy minus just like some shoulder stuff that we always needed to stay on top of. And that's also due to some, some anatomy stuff with, with my shoulder. Um, I really like, it was really in the Russian season that my shin came to be. So I went to Russia after my three years in Korea and that's when I started to feel that, that pain in my shin. Now, I mean, do you want to make the argument that Russia was the straw that broke the camel's back or something specific happened in Russia? Like, I'm, I'm not going to be one to, to pick one or another. Sure, a crazy amount of volume over three years really can't be good for your body. So probably had something to do with it. But it also might not have. It might have just been some circumstance as to what, what was going on in Russia. You can also accumulate it to playing full pro seasons, coming back, having a week or two off and jumping straight into national team and, and working nonstop. So if you want to blame Korea, the same pessimist should blame national team and be like, give people more time off. And maybe he shouldn't be playing 12 months out of the year. I would never say that or do that. Like I always wanted to play national team. I, I never wanted to take a break, but throwing blame at, at, at past places, I mean, you can always pick and choose where it's guided at is the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. And because the pain started in Russia, uh, I would attribute it to that season alone. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. Thank you for for sharing all the details you did. Uh, I do have to follow up on one comment. When we had uh, JVD on the show, he mentioned he never had uh, access to a translator at any of his clubs, but he may have dropped a hint that you did. So I'm wondering with your playing experience of being in you know, Turkey, Russia, Brazil, Korea, did you have access to an English translator? Was that part of your contracts? Yeah, so it was part of my contracts in Asia. So that's pretty standard business for them in in Asian countries. Korea always provides you with a translator. Japan provides you with a translator. I've never had a translator in any other country I've played in. But, you know, Asian countries are very accommodating as it is. And they usually have bigger budgets because they're sponsored by big teams. So they'll hire you kind of a a manager translator. It's just basically a problem solver, I guess is what you could call them. <laughs> so if you have issues, um, you talk to this guy directly. And I think that's also because in the teams I played for as well, there was never a ton of English. So the coach wants to be able to, to speak to the player as well. So yeah, Japan, Korea always had a translator slash problem solver uh, who could kind of contact the manager or deal with the club or knew what to do to, to help you with situations, you know, with your banking or, or whatever. I never used them as much as maybe some other people did. Like I always tried to find a way to function without them within like, you know, grocery shopping or some of the day-to-day life and then use them very specifically within the team. And what were some things you were looking for with your contract? Cause uh, I actually left one out. You won a championship in Brazil as well. Uh, you, you got to play in Turkey and play, I believe Glenn was at Arcus at that time and you got to play for a Turkish championship. Like, were you looking for these pressure moments where you were expected to be the best opposite or the best scorer and you wanted to play for a championship or when you were choosing which country or which club to go to next, what really went into your decision-making? Um, so yeah, after Korea, I, after my third year, well, it was actually in my second year, I wanted to go. Um, and I was looking at a club in Brazil at that point. And then the coach flew from Korea to Canada to sit down with me and try to bring me back for one more year. He gave me a big soft story about how he was going to retire and, and, uh, he didn't want to train a new player. So I went back for one more year, but at that point I wanted to play in better leagues. Um, and it was nothing against Korea. I've always enjoyed playing there cause it's very fun, but at a certain point in time, my focus shifted and I was like, okay, yeah, I need to be playing in Russia, Italy, maybe Brazil, Poland. Those were kind of the, the top at the time. And so straight out of Korea, I was looking for the best option for me to play on a good team. And I always wanted to play on top teams if, if possible. I mean, you know, it's not always possible, but if you're, if you've had a successful enough career and, and the opportunities are there, I was always like, send me to the, to the best team where we have a chance at a championship and I'm playing at a high level. Cause I, at that point I wanted to know what I was worth. I didn't want Korea play there for 10 years and, um, and never know if I could have played in Russia or Italy or top clubs and been successful. Even though funnily enough, when I told my coach in Korea, I was leaving, he like basically slid me a, a blank check. He's like, you tell me what you want and we'll bring you back. Wow. And I kind of just told him, I was like, don't, don't try to keep me like, let me go and, and try to see what I can do. And he was pretty respectful of that. Thank God, because as with pro sports, money always talks and they have a way to bring <laughs> you back. But I, I sacrificed on that end to, to go to Russia and sucky enough, they, Russia didn't even end up paying me. And I lost like 80% of my contract there because the team went bankrupt and, 
and it was crap. So after that, I, I had the option to go play for Glenn. Like I had gotten in touch with him and he wanted to bring me over to Arcus and, and there was an option to do that. And I was like, you know what? Turkey at the time was, was really booming. A lot of good players were going there. Sokolov, Wantarena, Kubiak was going to like Hulk bank. So I was like, you know what? It's a really good level at a more secure place. And, and Glenn can, had kind of assured me that, that it was, um, safe like there wasn't going to be any money problems so i started to recognize that i also changed representation with my agent and after that move it was always just like try to find teams in really good leagues and really good positions to to play at a high level i didn't didn't care if necessarily i was the best player on the team i just wanted to win and of course i wanted to be successful and play well and, and try to be the best player on the team but i just i really wanted to play high level volleyball and, and see what I was capable of. Yeah. And just a quick sidetrack. What is the process if you don't get paid again, to bring up JVD, he mentioned he had to file a grievance and because his club didn't go bankrupt, I believe, I think they had to pay him out later when they could prove they did have the funds, but for your club being not, not to slight a country, but Russia does have some stories for them to say they went bankrupt. Does that money just dissolve and you'll never be entitled to what you were paid in your contract there? Um, like that money will never come. I can I can assure you that I think uh, I think the lawsuit is basically dissolved now. I had someone reach out to me once about it. I pretty much chalked it up to gone. So yeah, so I ended up uh, having assistance from uh, from a friend of of mine who kind of helped me through the process, and his wife was a, a female agent, and we did all kind of the paperwork that we needed to ensure that that I took the right steps to try to get paid. So it was like, you know, handing over legal documents. We went to court with the team, not to FIVB. This process, the whole FIVB filing kind of came in a little bit after that year. So we went to Russian court. We won. We're like, yeah, you owe this guy's money. So we waited for a little bit to see nothing really came of it. So we tried the next step is kind of taking a bailiff. And I remember hearing the story that they're like, look, you take a bailiff. And you can do that if you want, but there's three kind of options. First is he goes there. Um, there's no money. He comes back. You get no money. Second, he goes there. There's money. It's Russia. We're corrupt as shit. He takes the money, claims there's no money, and you get no money. Oh, gosh. It's like third, he goes, there's money. He's an honest guy, brings the money back, and you get your money. Of the three, that last one is the least likely to ever happen. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and so that's basically what happened. He went, they reported there was no money. There was no money. I got no money. And, uh, I don't know, like there's backstories that like, you know, kind of the general manager took it and put it in a private account and what really happened to the funding. Maybe funding didn't come in. Maybe it was there and the bailiff stole it. Like I, I have no idea, but basically chalked that up to a loss for a year. Nice. I, again, we've, we've heard horror stories. It's good to hear a personal experience. Obviously, it sucks that you had to go through that experience, but it is interesting for volleyball players to hear that not everything goes to plan sometimes. Yeah, it's a, it's a learning process, that's for sure. <laughs> now, one thing I got to witness a little bit, you popped your head in at National Team Challenge Cup, and I gained so much respect for you because I always thought you were a great player, but everybody who wanted a picture or an autograph, like the kids were just over the moon to talk to you and, and learning that you got to play in Brazil and Turkey and Korea and some other volleyball fanatic places. How did you gain a comfort for that? Cause it can't be easy walking into a gym and having everybody know who you are. Right. So 
why is it so important for you to like take time for kids, whether it's at like a world league match or with your pro clubs to like take a moment and anybody who wants a picture is going to get one. And just for you to take a moment and connect with all these fans. So, yeah, that's, that's something that, that has always been kind of important to me. One is because growing up, I never thought I would be anybody that anybody ever wants a picture or a signature from. (laughs) And like, if you can kind of just put yourself in that, that kid's shoes uh, or that person's shoes, like you take a little bit of time out of your day to make their day. It's a pretty small act to make someone else's kind of, kind of day better. So it's just, it's just trying to keep that, that human side. It's, it's, it took a while to, to adjust to people wanting to kind of, yeah, always wanting like pictures, autographs and, and for sure, you know, you always put a smile on and, and you try to pretend like it's great and you love doing it. And there's days where I, really didn't love doing it. I was just like, can you all just leave me alone so I can just go home? And, and a lot of people have said, you know, you're really good at, at always doing that. And I would counter that and say like, I'm maybe not always because there's sometimes where or somewhere and I'll just actively like not try to avoid people, but not be seen or be too present where it will cause kind of a commotion and, and start the train of, of signatures and pictures because it's just, it can be very fatiguing, but if it ever starts, you just, you just try to welcome it and, and recognize it as a good thing. And, and it's a, and keep it as like, it's a good thing you're doing for other people because it's making them happy. And, and it's just being trying to be a good person to, to other people, because if you put yourself, like I said, if you put yourself in someone else's shoes, like that's just such a great thing for them and, and it's making them happy. So just try to get used to it and, and do it as much as possible while, while remaining sane. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for sharing all the details you have. So again, just to switch back to the national team, I'm wondering with Glenn being such a good long-term planner, what were the goals going on with the team guys? Cause obviously you're a competitive guy and you like playing for championships, but as the national team's growing and, and you're on pace to like be at the Rio Olympics, but there's going to be some hardship around the way, like are, are guys competitive in the room and they want to win now? Or was it always going to be part of this process that Glenn was preaching like patience? Like, was it a win now mentality and guys are, are freaking out or was everybody buying into like the, like the 2016, that's going to be our spot. That's going to be whether this program reaches like a, the top of the mountain. Um, I don't want to speak for everybody cause I don't know everybody's mindset. Um, but me personally, it was like a win now with the goal of like getting to Rio, like obviously usually your goal is your four year cycle. Right. And so I, I even think we had a pretty good crack at it 2012. Um, and that was devastating when we missed, when we missed that one and lost to the U S and so it's always been kind of a, a, for me. And I think for a lot of guys, I'm going to say, I think, because like I said, I don't like to speak for them, but most guys are competitive enough that it's a win now. Um, if you're playing a game, you're not leaving it after a loss being like, it's okay guys. Like I know it's 2011, but we're shooting 2016. (laughs) Everybody's like, we need to win now. Like we're, when we play, we play to win the subtle, the subtle backdrop and plan might be like, you know, all the pieces might not fall into place till, till 2016. And, and Glenn kind of had, had his steps to that, but we, we treated it every day as like, Hey, we're going into win. We're going into win now. We're going into to qualify in 2012. We're going into to do well in world championships. We're going in, and and that was always mine. And I think most guys' uh, mindset was like, win now, 
but know that there inevitably there is a bigger picture of where we want to get to and how how we can be successful down the line. But like stay competitive and try to win now. And was that just confirmation for all the work that you and the other guys had put in when you finally like won the bid to get to Rio? Because going through like the second chance qualifier, I, I can't imagine that was an easy process. And obviously the the story with Cuba and Edmonton, and that, that's well documented that that was just a heartbreaking loss. So how how rewarding was it to get to the games? And then when you finally get there, is everyone just happy to take a look around or was it we're here to win a medal? Like what was the attitude that you did you want to excuse me, I, I know you don't want to speak for other people, but was the mood that you were there to participate or was the mood there that we were there to take the games down? Um, so I'll start with the qualifier. And that was yeah, that was for me, that was more than than actually going to. So that was uh like with the the Cuba loss, as you had mentioned, and and everything that led up to that, and all the call, all the all the work, it was it was like super emotional for me, at least. Like it was that's like a feeling that I like felt inside that I've probably never ever experienced because it was it was a lot of work and it was a lot of hardships and a lot of a, a long road to get there. Um, so actually, qualifying was was a huge culmination and like a like a weight lifted off because that was always the goal that was never achieved. And then, you know, leading up to Rio, we had, we had a lot of meetings. We, we sat down and, and we had discussed and, and everybody was kind of on page as for like, we're going there to take the games down. Like we're not going, and we said it, I think I said it in interviews. Other people have, have as well. Like we're not coming to be tourists for sure. There was a certain amount of like, get in, enjoy the games because you don't want to, you know, miss out on some, some of the things that it, that opportunities that it provides and, and the experience of the games themselves. So we had most guys that were pretty good at, at balancing that experiencing a little bit of, of what it had to offer, but remaining focused on like on the mission at hand. And that was like, try to meddle here. Like we have a chance to do it. And we knew we did. And, and we came damn close, if not crossing over for Russia, which I think was one of the harder things was our, our quick turnaround against them and, and just a, a tough matchup against them. But the goal was to, to try to win. Like we, we all wanted real bad to, to medal out of those games. Yeah. The way the draw fell just on both sides and how the, the States seemingly like sneaked in and made their run for a medal. And with France being upset on the other side and, it, it was a very entertaining games, but I'm wondering just out of the gate that had to feel good playing the States, right? Like the way the schedule went and playing a rival, like did that help you get comfortable on like the biggest stage you've ever played on? Playing the States first and opening up with a, a big emotional win like that. Like we'd worked with a sports site to help curb some of the emotions that will come from winning and losing. But I think that just put a spark in everybody like, Hey, like we just took them down. Like, I know we talk the talk of like, we're not going to be tourists. We're here to win where we want to medal. But I think that just lit a little bit inside being like, we want to, and we say we want to, but now we believe it. Like, I think that, and for me, for sure it did too, because there's nerves going into that first game. It's Olympics. It's whatever actually on the court. It's, it kind of blurs into to just another match in some ways. But that for sure, just like put that little ember that could start the fire that like we say it and now we fully believe it. So like, let's go try and do this. And obviously the games get highlighted for you because after that tough quarterfinal loss, I think that was when you made the decision or, or shortly after that 
you weren't going to return to the national team, right? Like it was just, it was going to be a lot of load on your body. You were going to focus on your, on your pro career. Is that correct? Yeah. So, I mean, with the injuries leading up to Rio and, and everything that kind of went down, I knew that, that it was just like too much uh, at that point. I didn't know for sure, but I was like 99% sure that after Rio, that was going to be my last, my last run with it. Just because it was just it was just too much. All I went through in the in the in the years leading up with like surgeries and and everything, it um, it was mentally draining and phys- like it, it was a lot. So I I kind of knew that was where I was going to step away. And then what sparked you to come back during the Antigua era and play VNL? Like were were you just getting the itch, or you, your body felt great? You wanted to be a part of it, like. I remember reading an article that you you were very outspoken that you didn't want to disrupt the success the team was having, right? You didn't want to be a distraction, but you were there to help and contribute, right? Yeah. So Antigua had had contacted me about about coming back. Um, so I took the the following summer off, 2017 summer. I was home, and then he would have he would have contacted me when I was in, and he contacted me the first year he took it. But I told him like, look, I'm not coming this summer. Um, and, and when I, when I stepped away, like I told Glenn, I told everybody, like, I'm, I'm out. Like, it's just, it's too, it's a lot for me personally. Um, and physically, like, obviously my body is shattering and breaking down (laughs) in various ways. But I said, you can always call me. I don't know what the answer will be, but my phone is always on and I will always pick up and I will always have like an honest discussion with you. I had no interest in playing that following summer. And he had contacted me again when I was in Japan. And that's when kind of Sharon had his problems with his legs. So I, I had spoken to him a, a little bit about that. And he wanted to, first he just wanted to know like what my process of going through that was like. And and what what I knew about, about what he might have to do. Because I know they were trying to create... Uh, a plan for for show to to help him along and try to figure out what was right for him and so when they kind of figured out the route that they were going to go with him and and got all of his medical checks done they knew they were going to be down and opposite for the summer and they weren't entirely sure how long so he's like look i hope i hope show is going to be ready for the end of summer i know he's not going to be ready for vnl um so what do you think of like kind of coming to help? And so honestly, my intention was not to come back that summer. I, it wasn't due to the team's success. I wasn't outside looking at it being like, oh, I need to be a part of this now. It was mostly just they needed some help. They needed some coverage as far as like having an opposite who could play because they weren't sure how long the recovery would take for show. So I kind of just said, yeah, you know, I'll come, I'll come fill in and you can use me how, how you need for the summer. And, um, if I'm going to, if I need to be ready to do worlds with you guys, uh, I should probably do some amount of BNL just so that I'm not off international competition. So I needed to kind of come in and get re re acclimated with the team and with Antigua's style so that I could be ready for the end of summer uh, if they kind of needed me for that. 
And if you had to give just a quick shout out to what Stefan Antigua brought to the program, I know it was a little short lived, but what was his style and why were so many players happy to work with him? Like, I think everybody's happy to have Glenn back, but Stefan Antigua was doing a great job when we had a chance to work with him, right? Yeah, he just brought a, a very different kind of look and freedom to to his coaching style. So I think that was a, a big thing for that. Like he, everybody was used to playing very structured under Glenn. And Steph just brought kind of new ideas, new ideals, and and a bunch of uh, just just a fresh look to to it. And he had a lot of stuff that guys were were really able to buy into and and believed. And he was a he was a good a good leader, like in in that way. So I think a lot of guys really started to flourish under him once they got kind of free, very expressive style of of play and what he wanted from the guys. Awesome. Awesome. Well, man, it's been great to hear about your journey and all that you've you've put your body through and how you've been a great ambassador for our sport. Anyone who covers you on social, a couple major announcements. You're, you're married. Congratulations. That's a that's a big life goal to get there. And that you've announced that you're going to be taking a break. So I'm glad you didn't use the word retirement because there's, there's fans like me who could be hopeful that you'll be back. But what went into the decision to kind of announce that it, now's a good time for you to take a pause and take a break from your career? Honestly, like I last year in Korea was a was a tough year. Um, I was on the bottom team. It was it was a bit of a grind, and so I had I had kind of toyed with the idea, just kind of slowing down, getting tired. I all the way through my career, I always wanted to go out on on terms like not. I didn't want to be that guy that was just hanging on to hang on and playing in in terrible leagues. Like you know, I'm playing in Div three just because I'm too scared to move on. I always wanted to leave while I while I was still able to play and and play at a pretty decent level. You know, like people say, go out on top. Like I'm not going to go out on top, but I'm going to go out while it's still kind of at a decent level. So then, with with coronavirus and everything kind of going on in the world right now, and contracts being being hit, um, also just like the opportunities aren't there for me at the moment. So, you know, I've spoke with my agent, I've talked, uh, nothing really came up that fit, especially with my, with my wife and like the family that we, we want to have nothing kind of, kind of came up that was, was a good option. And so I don't have a lot of options. So that's, that's the first thing <laughs> that'll push you towards taking a break. And, you know, I could hang out and, and things might happen in the fall because there's always changes and, and whatever. But I'm also kind of the type of person that I need to make a decision and, and go in a, in a direction with it. So sitting down, we just kind of decided that with uncertainty over leagues, like I know they're all planning on starting up. A lot of guys have contracts and they're heading overseas and they're training. But if this thing was to spike again and you just get stranded and you get stuck, like who knows? Uh, there's a lot of other things going on in, in my life, in my wife's life. I had an opportunity here in, in Saskatoon uh, to do something that I think I'll enjoy. So it just kind of, you know, when they say like the, the world sends you a message or stars align or whatever you want it to be, it kind of just led me that, you know what, I'm going to try to look at this opportunity here. I'm going to indefinitely step away. I, I don't necessarily have plans to, to, to continue if, if all things go well, but as I learned with like, you know, kind of, I said that I was done with national team and I made like a quick little stint uh, labeling it as a indefinite break is kind of what it, it will be. 
with uh, no no return in sight, but it just things fell into place. And and if you just kind of take opportunities where they are, usually life will lead you where you're supposed to go. I I feel. Awesome, Gavin. I can't thank you enough for for sharing your process and being honest and, and you know settling a few rumors because I think anyone who's reached your level in our sport, there's obviously going to be some stories about you, and I'm glad we could confirm and and uh, even counter some of them. So that, that was great to hear your process. One thing we're, we're trying to make a tradition on the show is just to end with a funny story. So you've obviously played at the highest level, but I imagine something has happened along the way where you're kind of like, wow, this is, this is odd and exciting and I'll probably laugh about it later, but volleyball kind of gives us a platform that everything doesn't always go to plan. So I was hoping you could give us a funny story before we call it. So I'll give you two. I'll give you one really short, which was fans in Korea are super, super passionate. And they always bring gifts for players after I had, uh, I had a lady who came up to me and she wanted to, to make me a gift or get me a gift. So she asked what, what my underwear size was because she was actually going to go out and buy me underwear and give me underwear as a gift. <laughs> and, and apparently she was going to do it for the coach too, but we both kind of told her, I think the translator was like, that's not a, that's not a good gift. Like, <laughs> do not bring them underwear because they will not keep them. So that was that one always makes me chuckle, and then the other one, which actually it's it's a good vol kind of more volleyball story is uh, my first year in Greece in that first contract I took with the three Canadians. Um, we all I think I think we all had the same contract. Like it was all like you guys we're bringing you over for this much. You're all coming. You're on the same contract. It's basically the same. And so payday came around, and like we get the call from the manager or, or the coach who was speaking for the manager, whatever order it was. He's said, "Hey, come to the gym. It's payday." So we're like, okay, we'll go to the gym and sit there. And we're all expecting them to come with a check and hand us a check. And, and, you know, you put it in the bank or take it home or whatever. No can do. The manager, who was kind of a, like, long-haired, little, like, uh, greasy-looking guy, <laughs> drives <laughs> up in an old beater of a car. And he's like, hey, come here, come here. So we walked over, and he handed us, like, a, a wad of cash. And he's like, for you, for you, go. And... And so we went, <laughs> we had to like count through the cash and split it amongst the three of us, knowing what the contract was. So he just handed us a lot of cash for all three of us. We're just sitting outside the gym on like a park bench with a, like a stack of cash. At this point, we weren't like crazy high paid. It's not like he's dropping up a hundred grand or something, but we're sitting there divvying up these bills for our like monthly salary out in the middle of everywhere and then like stuff it in your pocket and I didn't know anything, so I literally like took it home, and as they say, I put it in in a sock in the sock drawer. <laughs> <laughs> and that's that was my bank for for the couple months I was over there. Oh man, if I had to experience that, I'd be like, "Is this it? Is this what professional volleyball is? Is not even getting like an envelope, just getting like a wad of cash, and you're sitting on a park bench counting it?" <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's quite the experience, but you know. Anybody who listens like and, and are planning on going going pro, it's like you know that might that still happens in some places. So don't be totally surprised. Like payments will come in all forms when you're when you're overseas. There's no there's no union where everything just gets wired in. Like some places are great, but sometimes you'll get handed a wad of cash or or whatever. It can it can be a little crazy. <laughs> Uh, this has been awesome, man. Thank you so much for, for taking the time and sharing that you did. We went into overtime a little bit. I know I, I promised you an hour, but I, I just had so many more questions and it was great to hear your story. So thanks again for taking the time and all you did for Canadian volleyball and, and best of luck with everything else you got going on. Thanks. Thanks so much. It's uh, it's a pleasure. Like I said, I like what you do and yeah, we're a little over time, but 
I don't know. If you need more time, you want to do it again, I'm, I'm always happy. I'm always here to talk. Yeah, I'm going to have to take you up on that because I feel like we didn't get into the, the details of all you've accomplished. But uh, I think we've covered enough for today. And, and thanks again. Yeah, sounds good. Thanks so much.